So you had seven years to do your degree and I was going to run out of loan by the time I was in fourth year. So in third year of medical school, I decided let's do something about it. There was already a big swell of movement. So I jumped on the bandwagon, joined the student movement (laughs) and started lobbying government. So Stephen Joyce was the minister at the time. And then I managed to talk to Annette King and heaps of amazing people. I used to go into Koru Club. (laughs) then this was the best chance to go and have some FaceTime with them and we were able to present a petition of 22,000 signatures to Annette King on the steps of Parliament and uh, Stephen Joyce capitulated Kia ora koutou and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome I'm Dr Nina Sue, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor my day job is helping sick kids get better But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems, and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was brought to you by Medworld, and made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. Welcome to the podcast Revolving Door Syndrome. This episode, we've got Dr. Liz Berryman, who was a nurse, a practice manager, and now doctor, but also now runs a tech startup called Channel. Welcome. Kia ora. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so I just want to ask you, like, where did it all begin? Like, how did your career in healthcare start? Wow. So my career started at a very early age. So I think I first started off as age 15. Really? Yeah. Yep. So working in aged care uh-huh. and I was in a rural town up north and my first, my, actually it was my second job. My first job was on the farm. But yeah, so this is my, been in healthcare since I was 15. Wow. Very long time. Yeah. yeah. And so what made you think, oh, I want to get into health? I always had a deep compassion for people and I wanted to make a difference. And my parents tell me that when I was a little girl, someone would fall over and hurt themselves. or the first one there trying to patch oh. them up. And when I was eight years old, I decided I wanted to be a doctor. Yeah. And I announced that to my family. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it just never really left. Yeah. Yeah. And so tell me about your career, like in nursing and practice managing and how that ended up going into medicine and your tech startup. Yeah. So as I said, wanted to be a doctor since I was eight years yeah. old and that was my dream. Through a variety of reasons, I didn't end up going into medical school from school. In high school, my boyfriend at the time actually got lymphoma. Oh, really? And he passed away in my final year of high school. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so that was a good three years of going through treatments. And so that had a profound effect on me, and I thought, I'm not actually going to be able to do first-year house I and get in, so I'll do nursing. Obviously, in adolescent age, your emotions are all crazy Mm. and it's already a difficult time as it is. But to go through that Mm. with your partner at the time, having gone through this big life event, what was that like? It was very lonely. Yeah. Yeah. At high school, everybody's talking about what they're going to do and hang out with friends. And when you're dealing with a life and death situation, nobody really understands that at age 15, 16. So it was quite lonely. Yeah. But I had an amazing support system through my church. And uh, I think that's given me such a grounding for life. 
going yeah. on and it, that depth of resilience. Yeah. It also made you grow up yeah. <laughs> really fast. There's probably lots of healthcare workers, such as myself even, who've never really gone through that process of losing someone so close to you. So grief is real and you have to process it. And if you don't, <laughs> it comes out in other ways. So it took me a good two, three years to fully process that. Were there any times where you felt like your needs or your partner's needs at the time weren't met in terms of a sort of emotional or spiritual level at that time? Oh, it's an interesting question. We had an amazing GP. Yeah. Who's Tim Malloy, who many of you will know because he is the president of the GP college or he was for many years. So we're incredibly blessed to have such an amazing primary healthcare team that coordinated all of the wow. cancer care, really, and then the Cancer Society and then Auckland Oncology and, yeah, got to meet a whole lot of specialists at a very young age and go through that. But there is one room where he was given his diagnosis at Auckland Hospital and I remember going back there as a junior doctor and I had this weird deja vu moment. So 10 years later and I just got this huge wave of emotion where I was like, this is the room where everything changed. So yeah, grief is something that you have with you the whole time. I think the thing that I really liked about Tim Malloy, he would keep that communication and he would, on a Saturday morning at nine o'clock in the morning, give us a phone call. Hey, you had treatments yesterday. How are you doing? I'm like, wow, that level of relationship was, you felt very cared for. That's really good to hear. I don't know if people are still able to get that level of care with the way that health system is now, but that's obviously something that we should be aspiring to have. Yes, yeah. And tell me about your time in working in primary care. What mm. was that like? How long ago was that? Oh, so going back to my career. <laughs> <laughs> so age 15, worked in aged care and home care and then went into nursing. So I actually started nursing at age 17. Yeah. <laughs> so I went to AUT and did most of my training at North Shore Hospital. Graduated at the bright age of 20 and was one of the first new grads in the new grad program at North Shore Emergency Department. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So straight into the thick of it. Oh yeah. How was ECC. that as a new grad? Crazy because the year that happened, a few people might know that North Shore Hospital was in crisis and there was ambulances ramping at the front door. I think the wins the prize for having 12 ambulances. Oh boy. With people doing CPR, waiting oh to get into hospital. Oh boy. Yeah. So similar to what we're seeing now yes. in some places. But that was back then and it was a really fast paced work environment and I really loved it. <laughs> Um, Love the drama, yes. Yes, yeah, <laughs> funny. We were talking before this podcast about the different personality types <laughs> and emergency people tend to love the drama. Yes, addicted <laughs> to the drama, can't stop, won't stop. So yeah, so that was yeah a great experience and I worked a lot of hours and I think I ended up redlining it with just fatigue levels and then was given an opportunity to go into the outback of Australia. Oh yeah, crazy. What was that like? Amazing. I'm so happy I did it. Yeah. So one year experience <laughs> and then straight out into the outback. And I was like, oh yeah, I've got all my ACLS and all the ticks in the right places. So they put me in a very remote area, one of the most remote. It was Roeburn, which is Western Australia. We were two hours from any hospital in a hospital I like clinic. <laughs> and if you had any needs, then you had a charge nurse that was about 20 minutes away. Otherwise you were on your own with an eight bedded hospital and a paramedic on site. What's the craziest thing that happened when you were there? Oh, wow. There was a local mining town. So Wickham and Roeburn were the biggest mining towns. And there was an accident in the mine where someone got electrocuted and full burns. And instead of calling the flying doctors or helicoptering them out, because the mines have their own helicopters. They decided to call me. <laughs> 
can we come to your little hospital? <laughs> I'm like, okay, sure. So they did. And the setup there is incredible. And I think this is where I got my love for telehealth and health tech because the setup was so supportive. So you come into the recess room and you've got three cameras right. in the room and you've got Polycom, probably in two different places. What's with, Polycom? Oh, like speakers, mics. Oh, right. The whole room is like mic'd up like a sim room. And so you put your patient in and then you call Perth Hospital and there is a doctor on call for all of the remote wow. nurses. And this is like 12, 13 years ago. So it's pretty amazing. And so you put them on video link and then they sign in and they go, oh, hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so. I'm here to talk you through this. And they literally felt like they were in the room with you. And it was so good because they weren't in the room that they had to tell you what to do in a very calm manner. And it was just you, no other nurses. Or oh, you me and the, the paramedic. paramedic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or a healthcare assistant as well. So there's the three of us in the room. And so we were working with this person who had burns at 90% of his body, Holy. except for where his boots were. His nose was completely gone. It was horrific. And yet we had this team in Perth that were video conferenced in, felt like they're in the room talking us through everything. You're faxing off the ECGs, they're reading them and then faxing them back. And <laughs> yeah, they're prescribing, faxing the prescribing through and then, yeah, standing orders. It was amazing. And then the flying doctors turned up. Hallelujah. Oh, wow. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. 12, 13 years ago and we're still using scanners in our hospital. <laughs> yeah, but like we could do thrombolysis. We could yeah. do if we had snake bites, like we had this whole kit where we had to test what snake it was and then give the right antivenom. And oh my God, it was amazing. Yeah. And I think that we could have done so much more in New Zealand using some of the similar technologies. I think it's okay if it's a simple thing and somebody's able to direct you how to do it, then it's okay. You don't need a medical degree to do some of the stuff that you know you were doing in Albany. Now we're going to have Google Glass where we're going to have oh. literally somebody in your glasses directing you. Is that what they're doing in Australia in the Outback? Oh, no, no. no. Just talking about technology. Oh, yeah. The use cases is incredible. It's like Meta, when they did their big launch, they were talking about a neurosurgeon in the UK could be doing a surgery in New Zealand. Right. That was yeah, literally yeah. what they said on their opening. <laughs> yeah. Here's Meta. So the use cases for that exact kind of virtual plus human tech enabled world is pretty cool. Yeah. All yeah. right. We're a bit behind the times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And uh, what was your work like after that? Like, did you come back to New Zealand? So it was yeah. over there that I really decided that I wanted to be a doctor. I liked the diagnosis. I liked the whole case management and things. And I always wanted to know why. But yeah. why did you decide to give that drug? Oh, go to medical school was the answer. <laughs> and I was like, fine, then I will. And so I, when I was in the Outback, I applied to university. So I applied to Auckland and didn't get in. Wow. Yeah. So that was my first attempt. And five attempts later, five attempts, oh I finally goodness. got accepted to Otago Medical School. Yeah. And the Others Program. The Others Program. Yeah. Which is now renamed. Program. It's got a better name now, but it was called <laughs> The Other Pathway. <laughs> I know. Way to alienate a whole group of people. But yeah. okay. So it's people who had worked in allied health for five years or more. Oh, okay. So nursing, paramedic, midwife, yeah. pharmacy. Cool. So what was that like for you? Do you find that a lot of stuff was like quite easy because you'd done it before or? Oh, I loved medical school. Yeah. Oh, I found my people and all my questions. I was that mature student, the annoying one, sitting at the front <laughs> of the class asking questions. I remember chem class putting my hand up and asking what a mole was. And everyone in the class, like that silence. Oh my God, who is that? <laughs> but I think it was good. I wasn't afraid of asking silly questions. 
When did you get the idea that you wanted to make your app channel? So even though I loved medical school, <laughs> I think I like to be a positive disruptor. Yeah. And first of all, there was an issue for a lot of the postgrad students and the other group who had degrees before. So mm-hmm. there became a limit with the amount of money that you could borrow from the government to complete your degree. It was called the seven Fs. That's so, right. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> so you had seven years to do your degree. And so for someone like myself who had done bachelors of nursing and then a master's in health science, I was already well over before starting from scratch at HealthSci, another six years. So I was going to run out of loan by the time I was in fourth year. So in third year of medical school, I decided let's do something about it. There was already a big swell of movement. So Philip Cowell and Marie Stewart and a lot of people in the NZMSA pushed for a long time. So I jumped on the bandwagon, joined the student movement (laughs) and started lobbying government. So Stephen Joyce was the minister at the time and then I managed to talk to Annette King and heaps of amazing people. I used to go into Koru Club. (laughs) then that was the best chance to go and have some FaceTime with them and we were able to present a petition of 22,000 signatures to Annette King on the steps of parliament and uh, Stephen Joyce capitulated and we got the 7Fs limit lifted for medicine vet and dentistry. I'd had my kind of foray into advocacy and then I really enjoyed it. (laughs) (laughs) Addicted to it, yeah. Yeah, So I started to look at other things that were going on that we could advocate for and make better. And so joined the New Zealand Medical Students Association and then became the president of the... Accidentally became the president, wow. (laughs) Yeah, so president of UMSA, which is the Otago one, and then president of NZMSA and then went on and be... I was on the board of NZMA as well. And I was on breakfast TV advocating for students' rights and loans and things. And I was also having my first experience as a student in ALM or in the clinical years. I was placed into a surgical department and I thought, yes, finally out of the lecture theatre and being able to do some more practical things. But the team that I was placed in the world that I was on had a toxic workplace environment. And just after six weeks of being on placement, I started to really suffer the effects of being in a toxic work environment. Could you sort of tell us what you mean by a toxic work environment? Yeah. So there was a lot of behaviours that we'd know as unprofessional or inappropriate. For instance, bullying behaviours from senior medical leaders (laughs) in surgery. If I did something wrong that was causing something to be unsterilised, be yelled at, told to get out, utensils that were blunt were thrown across the surgical department room. At you? Not directed at me. When you've got blunt scissors throwing across the room, it's not a fun place to be. I bet, yeah. yeah. I was coming in on Sundays to like prep for the ward round because this particular surgeon had a style which we know now as pimping, which is you'd stand at the end of the bed of the patient on ward rounds and you would present your patient, this is Mr. Smith, blah, 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 blah. And he would then interject and say, got it wrong, got it wrong, right in front of your whole team and the patient. So there was very high standards and the other students seemed to be getting on fine, but this particular surgeon to make comments about what I wore, that I had glasses, just kind of stuff like that is probably inappropriate in any workplace. And so no surprises, it started to have a toll on my mental health. I started to not be able to sleep. And one day I had a full on panic attack in the corridor and I'd never had a panic attack in my life. Like I'm an ED nurse. I've worked in the outback of Australia with these situations, which are pretty stressful and never come anything close to having a panic attack. It was actually another junior doctor who found me in the corridor having a panic attack and She actually went on and became my mentor, which I'm very grateful for. And so I had a meeting with Professor Peter Crampton, 
He was the pro vice chancellor at the time, and we were supposed to be catching up about students' issues. And instead, wow, this sounds like a student issue. <laughs> yeah, I just broke down in tears Aww. in his office, and uh, I was like, I just can't going. I just can't keep going. I quit. I'm going to go back nursing. And to my surprise, very calmly, he said, No. <laughs> I do not accept. <laughs> I'm sick and tired of seeing our brighter students leave because of the work environment mm. and the hospital environment. This has gone on for far too long. We know that we've got a bullying and sexual harassment and unsafe work conditions. It's time we did something about it. So then actually to his credit, he went away and gathered a whole lot of amazing people. The Dean of the Christchurch Medical School, Tim Wilkinson, and Lindley Anderson from, she's now Head of Bioethics, some postdocs, Kelby and Althea, and put together this Creating a Positive Learning Environment team called CAPEL. Some of the group did some of the co-design and qualitative research, looking at teams that were doing really well and finding out what they did that made those teams so successful. Like as in hospital teams? Yeah. yeah. The old departments. Yep. And then we were looking at departments that didn't do so well and what was the factors going on there. And how did you guys measure whether they were doing well or not well? Like what kind of, yes. what was your key KPIs? Yeah, so say? we had a, a NACA a negative acts at work score that we actually adapted for the medical environment okay. and that's actually published as well. So yeah, we had a whole lot of surveys and qualitative tools that we used too. So um, then were you measuring yeah. like how employees were feeling or were you measuring Both. like outcomes? No, both. So, both. Okay. so we would interview the managers and the leaders uh-huh. and the senior clinical team about what they were feeling. And we got them to write journals and logs for uh-huh. us about what they were experiencing. And then also surveying students and employees as well. Uh-huh. And what did you guys find? What, what were the key features of a good team? Mm. And a bad team. Yeah, I love this. So one of the things that came out strongly was hospitality. Uh huh. So we found that the teams that had the high satisfaction scores and actually student outcomes mm-hmm. had more students passing and having higher grades were ones that had hospitality. So they would go for coffee together as a team. They would, if they didn't do that, they would have the staff room open and say, hey, just all members of the staff come and feel welcome to, to have food together. And so that concept is actually right through society. Yeah, because I find that it's like the little things that are actually massive, isn't it? Like it's just being kind. I don't want to quote from our mate Jacinda Ardern, but (laughs) being kind is just so important because I feel that I see the way people react when Mm. I am kind to them. And then sometimes to the point where you're like, am I the first person that's been kind to you today? Because I know what it's like to be on the other end when you're busy, you've been working a long day and it just takes one person to basically shit on you on the other end of the phone to just make you feel awful for mm-hmm. the rest of the shift. Because once you're hit, how are you supposed to be empathetic to someone else if you don't have empathy for yourself? I did some research independently of that group as well. And my area of research was talking to medical students about what they want to improve their mental health and well-being. Was it more yoga sessions or modules on sleep hygiene or <laughs> resilience or no, none of those things. Indeed. That's right. None of the above. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we did a prevalence survey. So we actually asked every single medical student in New Zealand through the NZMSA to do a survey for us. And we found out that over 50% had experienced bullying or sexual harassment on placement in the past year. I'm not surprised, to be honest. Yeah. So that actually was a surprise to me. And then when I looked at the international data to do the literature review to go with it, I was like, oh, no, this is a global problem. But global for health. 
Yeah, for health. Yeah, yeah just for health. Yeah. So the further you down the food chain you are, the more prevalence of bullying and sexual harassment you have. So I thought, why is no one talking about this? This is huge. Because we're all putting our heads down because we want to get on to surgical training programs and things like that. Because <laughs> it's career suicide. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, especially in New Zealand and Australia where it's such a small community. If you are the person who says, I've been sexually harassed, you're going to be tarnished forever. Absolutely. It's happened in Australia lots, isn't it? Yes. It's not that I don't want to do surgery. I think it'd be great to do surgery, but I just, I couldn't put myself through the risk that I put myself in one of those toxic environments because it's just too much. And people work so hard to get on a training program. And I thought it's just not worth it. And you don't want to show any signs of weakness. Exactly. Either. You definitely just tough it out. But we've managed to find some incredibly brave people who did say, look, we're going to put our names to this and talk about it. So there was probably about, 20 of us that went on record. It's on YouTube. You can still see it where we actually talked about our experiences of being bullied. And my story, which I just shared with you, is actually quite benign compared to some of the stories that we had coming through. And then this floodgate just opened and people started sharing historic stuff. I had senior doctors sharing with me stories that they had experienced. And I just thought, gosh, this has had such an effect on people's mental health and well-being and how they function as a doctor. These experiences are so unnecessary. Why are we behaving this way? And if we can't stand up and talk about the issues, what can patients do? Of course, we have things like the Health and Disability Commissioner and things like that, but it's the small things like implicit bias and feeling not listened to, but don't feel like they have the agency to stick up and say, hey, that was actually wrong. Actually, that is not actually quite true. Oh. So this the smaller stuff, people go, I will speak up about that. And yeah. I feel comfortable about calling out your racism there. Not always, but when we did our survey, people were more comfortable with that stuff. They weren't comfortable in saying, I have been sexually harassed or sexually assaulted in some cases. That was too taboo. That's crazy. Mm. And the victim mindset and all this psychology that goes into that. And so when did you start making channel? Yeah, it was that research. So when I did focus groups talking to medical students across Australia and New Zealand, and that was fascinating seeing... Oh yeah, so what did they want? Yeah. You said that all the students, they didn't want things like resilience workshops, things like that. Yeah. What did students want? The very basic thing was that they wanted to have an anonymous place to go. They did not want to have their name associated with anything at any time. Yeah. Even if they were doing really well with their well-being, they still didn't want their name associated to it. So it had to be private and it had to be just for them. And when they wanted to, share it in an anonymous and safe way. So they wanted a channel. They wanted this third space between medical school, between the hospital systems, between training programs where they could be free and safe to get help and support and speak up. They said that they wanted an app to do that. And I said, no, an app's just a cool thing. It's 2015. The banks just came out with their apps. No, how about we put a little tab on Moodle or Blackboard? And they go, no, no way, because they'll be able to tag that to my student ID. Yeah. No, they were so convinced that anything that they did was going to be trackable, that they wanted to have it completely independent on their own personal device. So I asked a friend of mine from medical school who was a software developer before coming into medical school. And I said, how hard is it to make an app? And he's, oh, it's pretty hard, but I can do it. I was like, okay, cool. So he spun up the first research app. And so we enlisted 30 students into the first program. And lo and behold, they used the app. They did a daily check-in every day with their mental health on tracker and also journaled about what they were experiencing that day on the wards. They did it every day with a 90% compliance rate, which is huge. So when I went to see the biostatistician at Otago Uni to help do the analysis, 
he was like beaming at me. <laughs> He's like, for even a paper-based survey, a good result would be like 50%. This data set is incredible. And so what we were able to do is correlate the well-being scores with the experiences that they were having that day. And we're able to say, if you experienced working in a positive team environment and had hospitality and felt like you helped someone and felt like you learned something, this had a 20% increase on your well-being that day. If you experienced something that was negative, like that phone call from a colleague that might not be so civil, that had a X decrease on their well-being. A couple of people said it was really hard to know when to reach out for help. When is it just tough and you just need to toughen out or when is it actually a problem and you need to go and see someone? So they wanted to use their early warning signs to be like, okay, I need to go and get help now. They also really loved the speak up feature where they could speak up safely anonymously about things ranging from the hardcore bullying harassment stuff through to the softer things. Because right now we feel unseen and unheard <laughs> by the leaders now. <laughs> yeah. And so we were able to get some quick wins. Like we found out that Invercargill Hospital, people weren't sleeping. And we're like, what's going on in Invercargill? Actually, where we were sleeping was the nurses, ex-nurses quarters, and it was not conducive to sleep. So they managed to do some changes and they renovated it. And now we can see that people are sleeping better. You can identify <laughs> what the problems are because who knows what the problems are better than the people who are facing the problems. Exactly. <laughs> and when you're tired, you're impaired basically. Yeah. And so you aren't going to be so kind at work. So it's about making the holistic picture. Yeah. So not just, oh, let's sort out the bullying problem, but actually let's sort out the entire environment. Yeah. Because I feel like the bullying doesn't mean somebody is a bully, but they're probably having a bad day. But then maybe someone else is having a bad day and then made them have a bad day and then they're making me have a bad day. <laughs> exactly. The chain reaction. Yeah. We have to look at the whole picture and go, where are the parts in that picture that we can make change? It's not just about doing one thing, it's about doing lots of little things together. If you like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. So since Channel, what sort of other findings have you found now that you've scaled up? Oh, wow. So I presented at the Royal College of Surgeons in Adelaide Symposium. Ooh. Yes. <laughs> I was up against like people getting into plastics training go, and girl. doing their PhDs. And here I am. Hi, I'm a medical student. <laughs> There's a little study. And, and it won the best education prize. Amazing. Well done. And I had a whole lot of people emailing me and ringing me going, hey, this is a really great study. Can we have your app? And I'm like, well, it's just a research project. I'm trying to finish with medical school. Made it. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, no, this is a solution that we really need. Can we use it? Fast forward a year. So I was finishing off my TI year. Final year of med school. Yeah. yeah. And I was pregnant. And <clears throat> I finished my last exam and then I went home and then went into labour. <laughs> <laughs> the woman who has it all. <laughs> Not planned. I was 37 <laughs> weeks. I said to my husband, hey, I'm going to go on mat leave for a year between TI and PGY1. Can I do this app research? So he said, sure, go for it. And shout out to Jenny Wagner from Middlemore Hospital who came on that journey and held the baby. We launched this, this research project. So I just wanted to make sure it wasn't just a one-off study with a small sample size. We did a large sample size and got some very similar results. And so then on the back of that, we commercialised it and went through a big commercialisation programme at Auckland Uni Services and then became an official startup. In February 2020, we launched the commercial app. Everyone will know, March 2020, along came Pandemic. And 
then it just went a bit crazy. We had a large research trial at ADHB with the Children's Emergency Department and the Auckland Adults Emergency Department, but then we had floods of interest from all around the world. So we went from being in four hospitals to 12 hospitals to being in seven countries. Wow. Um, And then outside of healthcare, so oil and gas and construction and universities and mining and yeah. Can you give examples of some findings that you found through the channel app that's caused businesses or whatever to like change things and make things better? Yeah, absolutely. So we call them quick wins. So what we try and do is design interventions Mm -hmm. on the back of what is going on for the team. So you might find that communication is an issue with the team. So we'll go, okay, an intervention on the back of that is we're going to have a workshop about how we're going to communicate in this team. And we have playbooks and we have things for leaders and managers to help them to be able to make those quick wins. It depends on each team. And so we've got a whole list that people can choose as a result of their data. So they use the data, then they make the decision about what they're going to put in for their team, and then they're going to measure the results. And that's super exciting. It's data-driven leadership. So the people use this app, they fill it in, and the data comes to channel. Yep. Does that right? And then you guys collate it into... Aggregate it. Me- yep. Yeah, aggregate it, yes. Yep. Into meaningful information. Yeah. Yes. Yep. And then you present it back to the business, and then they're like, oh, wow. So we call it a loop. So the employee will do a daily check-in or a weekly survey, and we ask questions around the work environment. That then gets surfaced up to three different levels. So there's one that goes to the board. <laughs> so there's like a skip level where there's like whistleblowers and mm. all sorts of things can be put mm. into this board report. And then there is a senior leadership report that's got a bit more information in it and a bit more granular details about the themes of what people are experiencing. And then we've got a health and safety report. So everything in the app is actually themed towards psychosocial risks in the workplace and psychological safety. That is a international best practice standard called ISO 45003. And it shows what a good workplace should look like and what levels of psychosocial risks. Because as an ED doctor, you're never going to be able to stop having aggressive patients or a recess or a patient You can put things in place to put protective measures in. Usually everybody thinks of EAP Mm. as being the magic wand protective factor for all psychological things. But in fact, there's not. So you'll know in recesses, you can have hot debriefs and cold debriefs and lots of little techniques like that we are able to surface to a team and go, hey, you've got a high level of this particular risk at the moment. This is a control measure that you can put in place. So does channel like replace HR or is it different from HR? It's different. I feel sorry for HR and health because a lot of the time they're quite disconnected from the front line and it's very hard to infiltrate (laughs) our healthcare jargon and silos. The problem is if... For me, anyway, and I'm sure this is probably the experiences of lots of junior doctors, is that we don't really have a lot of psychological support unless we connect with our senior colleagues. I've been in some places where I'm like, oh, I feel part of the team. I can go to anybody about anything. And then I've also conversely been in teams where I'm like, I can't go to anybody about anything. Mm. Yeah, that's right. So there's a big continuum out there. And so that's the concept of psychological safety. And basically the bare bones of what you need to get right to get a safe working environment. And think of it like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You have to get that base level one right, uh, where people feel safe and where they are able to operate in their best before you can move up to level four psychological safety, where you get high performance, innovation, creativity, positive disruptors. So yeah, there's this continuum. And so what we do is we kind of measure and benchmark where an organization's at and then take them on this journey to get them to level four. 
Why does like workplace psychological safety matter? Like what are the big consequences for the wider population? Yeah. Google did a project called Project Aristotle where they looked at all of their teams and they worked out that the ones that were the highest performing teams had the highest level of R&D, had the highest satisfaction scores, they had the lowest staff turnover, was the teams that had the highest amount of psychological safety. And they found that there was equal voices. So in a team, everybody was able to speak up and have the space and the airtime to be able to speak up. Other things were around being able to fail. The leaders were like, yes, go try that thing. If it fails, that's okay. We got your back. Try again. We'll take this as a learning opportunity, not a blame game. Because it's totally the opposite in health, isn't it? There's just no room to fail. Because there's that case that happened in the UK. I think it was like some lady who went for an elective procedure, Mm -hmm. an enostroke procedure, and then she had a really bad adverse event from the anaesthetic where they couldn't put that breathing tube down and help her breathe. And I think the case was that there were all these very senior people around, anaesthetists, enostroke doctors around, trying again and again to put a breathing tube down this lady's throat to help her breathe. And I think it was some nursing staff, like theatre nurse staff, who thought, oh, obviously we've got senior people here. Why don't we put in a surgical airway? Because we've got the equipment, we've got the people here and they put that equipment down in front of them but didn't feel comfortable enough to speak up. And what happened was because this lady went without oxygen for so long, she ended up basically becoming brain dead and eventually passing away. And they went back again and again, didn't they, through this sort of case and realised that it was just no psychological safety. You're right. So one of the nurses pulled out the tracky kit but never spoke up. It's one of my favourite books, actually, Black Box Thinking. And it's just so interesting, the interplay of comparing healthcare with the aviation industry, where we have such different levels of safety (laughs) and communication and the whole hierarchy in medicine means I don't necessarily feel safe to speak up about safety issues for the patient when I I should be, because it's at the end of the day, it's the patients that have the consequences. So is channel making moves within public health system in New Zealand? We run lots of research studies Uh and pilots. New Zealand's really great at innovation and exporting that to the world. Yes. And we are a village. We're such a small island and I think that's our superpower because we believe that we can take on the world. And so we do. So although it's disappointing to not get big traction in New Zealand. Why is that? Why don't we have channels widespread in the public hospitals? Because I'm like, I wish I could complain about things anonymously. I'd love to do that. But unfortunately, now I have to complain about things with my podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would love to be able to provide channel free. And the plan with this is actually, it's held in a trust, all my shares. So hopefully if Channel does become a great success globally, that those shares will go into creating some amazing program for all doctors, Uh whether that's in a private hospital where you can pay for it, or if you're working in Sudan. So yeah, I think that although a lot of doctors are concerned about the commercial model, I just, we don't actually have a choice. Yeah. Cause you have to pay people and you need and money software to is not cheap. Yeah. <laughs> it's very expensive to do out tech, yeah. especially AI and all the really cool cutting edge stuff that yeah. we have to have now. So yeah, no, the commercial model is the only viable option at the yeah. moment. Side question. So what do you think about the concepts that we're seeing like in the media about things like quiet quitting, the great oh, resignation, yeah. all that kind of stuff? Do you think it's just corporations just excusing their ability to not invest in their employees because they're like, oh, I was going to quit anyway? And all these like big tech companies who are doing massive layoffs. What do you think about that? 
Yeah. So we work with Professor Jared Ha from AUT and he's like a burnout academic and researcher in organisational development. And he actually did a great piece about quiet quitting and his hypothesis was people are just sick and tired of going the extra mile and going above and beyond to the detriment of their well-being. So people are actually saying, we're doing what you're telling us to do and actually looking after ourselves and we're pulling back from all that extra stuff that we just sucked up before. And so he's actually, look at this as a positive thing that people are actually making sure that they're going to not burn out and they're putting those boundaries in place. But to your second point around great resignation, this is a phenomenon which is fascinating. So yes, some of it I think people are just like, change, let's just, the world's changing, the pandemic change, let's just change everything. But then there's also that whole point, probably back to Professor Ha's point around, we're not going to put up with workplaces that don't value us anymore. Yeah. And I, in medicine in particular, there's this group called Creative Careers in Medicine. That's right, yeah, part there's, of that group. There's like 15,000 people on there. Yeah. And all the time, burnout and I can't keep going any longer. I love my job and I love my profession, but I'm not going to tolerate it ruining my life yeah. <laughs> and my family. So the people are quitting because of that. Doctors generally full-time is 60 plus hours a week, which is 1.5 times full-time for everyone else. And when I'm working part-time, I'm still working basically 30 hours a week, which is almost legal full-time. Yeah. And it's actually, it's because I've only ever worked in health. It screwed me up because coming into channel and into a tech environment where 40 hours is the standard, I'm still working at that 60 plus yeah. and expecting my team to do the same. And so I, I realised this is not normal. No, expectations need to be 40 hours. <laughs> yeah, because the general population, if we want to expect good healthcare, yeah. we need healthcare workers that we look after as well because stuff in the New Zealand Women of Medicine page as well on yes. Facebook about people being like, hey, what am I supposed to do? Because I have all these doctor's appointments and specialist appointments, but the hospital won't give me like leave to go do them. And we have this system we're supposed to promote health but we can't even do it for our own people that's right so that's why we're talking about people first organizations yeah. and a lot of this thinking around patient first which is great but actually patient outcomes are so closely linked to employee outcomes and that's the psychological safety piece so an example is that the receptionist has just had their manager yell at them because they did a billing wrong or they did something wrong and so then the customer walks in and then the receptionist is grumpy and oh, 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 oh who are you here to see? The customer doesn't know anything about what's just happened yeah. to that poor receptionist who's just been yelled at. All they see is that this receptionist is not warm and welcoming and they don't get a good experience. And so that flows on to a poor patient outcome because they're already like, this place doesn't like me. And then mm. they go in to see the doctor and then it's all negative and it's just this downward spiral. And so that's why we can use this people first concept to be like, Actually, if you want to increase your patient safety and your patient outcomes, it's actually putting your people first. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So what are your thoughts on our current workforce crisis in health? I think what's happening is the healthcare systems around the world globally are becoming more and more under pressure. So I saw a statistic that 75% of admissions to hospitals are for a preventable condition. Wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> preventable. So we are being asked to do more and more with less and less. And we're also living longer. So we're getting more aged care pressures as well. And our health workforce is not growing. We haven't invested in it. Worldwide, we haven't invested in it. So I think that we need to think smarter. And it's not just about putting more healthcare professionals uh, nope. into those roles. It's about actually getting serious about our whole society, how we live, 
our sedentary lifestyle, our nutrition, everything. Absolutely. You're right. Everything we're seeing is preventable and everyone's getting sicker and older. And we're in crisis because the shift that I did yesterday, we had a bit of a talking to, I suppose, from one of our managers saying that we're basically not seeing enough patients. We're doing too much for our patients, that actually we should be doing the less so that we can see more patients because we're not seeing enough, apparently, which I think is absurd because the issue is that we can't practice emergency medicine like we used to. We used to probably be able to be like, hey, this is a resource patient. This is a patient that needs to go be admitted to hospital. And this is a patient that needs to go home. But all the goalposts are changing because Mm -hmm. I can't just discharge someone and be like, follow up with your GP in yeah. two days or in a week. I have to discharge people knowing that they're not going to see their GP for two weeks. So I have to start doing things for them, making sure that they're absolutely going to last mm-hmm. two weeks at home. And that's on you too. Yeah, that's a huge exactly. amount of burden for because, you to carry. Because when you look at what happens with the Health and Disability Commissioner when there are errors and real patient harms, yes, they identify that there's a s- systemic issues. But when it goes to the news... The doctors and nurses that are thrown under the bus, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So this week, the NHS in the UK has gone on strike and it's the biggest strike that they've ever had and nurses and paramedics across the board are going on strike in the NHS and they are saying that they need to go on strike to save the health system. This crisis has been talked about for 20 years and nobody's been listening. Like on the NZMA, we wrote lots of policy documents about it. Primary health care is where we really need to focus. And public health... And talking about just like climate change, how that's a movement where everyone's like, we need to do stuff with plastic bags. Why don't we do more about our obsogenic environment? Put that sugar tax on. (laughs) Like, seriously, it's no brainer. Yeah, I think health is health. Education is health. The justice system is health. Everything at the end of it impacts health. So I'm like, no, everything is like a health intervention. It is. That's right. So I would really just love to see a huge mind shift for everybody. So... Health literacy needs to become something that we teach in schools, that everybody knows. We need to start doing those systemic level things like the sugar tax, more interventions in schools. This is something that we really need to focus on if we're going to get through our healthcare crisis because building more hospitals is not the answer. No, it's definitely not more ICU beds. That's definitely not what's going to solve our issues. I listened to your podcast with Carlton and he was saying the same thing about paramedics. And I think the first recommendation was put paramedics or the ambulance station on site with the local GPs. Like they just... An amazing resource. Yeah, I'm sure there's something that the GP can learn from the paramedic and the paramedic can learn from the GP. Absolutely. It's about teamwork. Absolutely. And the worst of the world. So we work now across a whole lot of industries, the channel. And so I'm using ideas from the tech world and from oil and gas and things like that to bring it into healthcare. So one of those concepts is about agile. Oh, yes. Interesting. So I had a chat on a previous episode with a colleague of mine. He's got his own sort of education startup talking about agile. So how does agile work in health? Because his point was that it's quite hard because the stakes are higher in terms of making mistakes within Ah. healthcare. So how do you see agile working in health? Wow, that's interesting. It's more about the concept uh-huh. of Agile. And I think we need to adapt it to uh-huh. the healthcare setting. So definitely healthcare does have different environments. But say, for instance, in ED, instead of doing primary nursing, where you've got your four patients that are yours to look after, a lot of EDs are now moving towards pods. So you have 10 patients that three nurses will look after. And that way you've got a pair of hands to help you out. You're not going, oh, can you please come and help me? It's No, we are a team of three nurses. We are sorting out these 10 patients and we're going to work together. 
So I think that's that team-based stuff. And then you get your breaks because there's only three of you and you can take the breaks between you. And then you can talk with each other. Oh, do you think that's right? Do you not think that's right? Mm. So there's so much synergy changing from old ways to new ways. Amazing. Yeah. One final question. What is your favourite book you've ever read? Oh, wow. That's a big question. (laughs) Can I say something from my childhood? Yes, of course. (laughs) I love Anna Green Gables. Okay, which one? What book is that one? I don't know. Oh, it's a series. Uh It's a series. And it's even on Netflix now. So you you don't even have to read it. You can just catch up on Netflix. But no, I just read them over and over again and can quote them. And yeah, became a little bit of a cult. What is the story? So Anne is an orphan Uh and she's in Prince Edward Island, which is just off the coast of Canada. And there's a brother and sister who are running a farm and they both spinsters, they didn't get married. And so they adopted a boy to come and help on the farm. But the orphanage sent Anne, which is a girl, and she has red hair and freckles and is very eccentric. And yeah, that's I just love that story. About what do you love about it? That I actually love that she's so honest about her emotions. She's just like a roller coaster of emotions. And she's there's a lot of soliloquy where she's always talking in her head and make-believe friends. And I just love that she's so quirky. And cool and emotional like me. There's so much power in being able to express your emotions honestly and openly, isn't there? Yes. Thank you so much for coming on Revolving Door Syndrome. Thank you for having me. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and te tiriti o Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap.